Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome to the Vet Gurus, Brendan here with Mark, as always, as usual. And thank you for joining us with our little podcast here. Mark, how have you been? Everything's been great at our part of the world, Brendan. We've been uh, still just travelling around and um, enjoying things, enjoying life, enjoying the sunshine. A few midges. I meant to mention this at some point. One of the things about camping um, that has really surprised me is the number of small biting insects I've got to deal with. But... um, but all things told, not too bad. Yes, as long as those infectious vector-borne diseases don't kick in too early, Mark, we'll be we'll be all okay. Um, so thank you for joining us, everybody, vetgurus.com. And um, don't forget to go to the website there and have a look at some previous episodes. You can catch up on all 250-odd episodes or just around about, depending on when this episode goes to where, because <laughs> this one's one that we're sort of pre-recording. Um, Mark, I was going to say I, I've got a bit of a shout-out to somebody, but I'm, I'm not going to do it this week because I want it to be specific for a specific date. So um, that's our, our little preamble has already gone <laughs> to the wayside already, as usual, our, our, our extensive production um and prep, planning meeting prep, um is um is out the window already yes already and uh, although one thing we were chatting about i was just saying that i just did a um a, a mature rab uh, a mature dog desexing a mature dog spay and um yeah, it's um, interesting, as uh, some listeners may not know, but in my clinic we still do probably 10% dogs and cats, as well as all our exotics. And um, yeah, I hadn't done a dog's bay for a while, but uh, as I was mentioned to you off air, Mark, it's sort of, you get used to it, don't you, once you've done a few hundred or a few thousand, I suppose it would be in my case. Um, it, um, it It's there in the back of the mind and you sort of snap into automatic mode and you away you go and you get into your little zen mode and surgical mode and i think you do something similar um and you're just you're just in the moment aren't you um and there you are removing Even now, one, yeah. one of the things that uh, fascinates me at least in you know a little bit over half my surgeries is how you know you open a large animal like a dog up um, and there's remarkably little bleeding. I, I seem to remember when I was young, I'd scrape my knee and it was um, like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. There was blood everywhere. But you open up a dog's abdomen and, and pull the uh, the reproductive bits out. And, um, and yeah, it, it never ceases to fascinate me that there's so little blood. Most, well, most of the time I say, Brendan. <laughs> yes. And the time when there is, you think, whoops. You, know, you, say, you say that usual word that surgeons shouldn't say, whoops, um, and you know, it's gone south. Yes. Now, actually, I, when you mentioned that little story, I, I completely agree. I remember when I was younger, or even when I first started veterinary school, I was thinking that, gee, when you cut into bodies and, and look in there, there must be lots of bleeding and lots of mess. But if it's done correctly, there's yeah, very little bleeding and there's certainly very little mess and there's... Um, 
yeah, it's it's fascinating, isn't it? Um, it's good. So yes, so uh, there you go, Mark. Um, I'm I, 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 I'm surprised that I'd say after all these years how much I enjoyed a dog spay. There you go. I, I agree with you entirely. It's fun, uh, and the like the whole process of being able to do surgery to um to cut into something and and look at its organs and change still you know after all these years still fascinates me. Yes. Never gets old. Never gets old. <clears throat> Never gets old. Well, speaking of old, Mark, um, I don't know whether you've seen the article I've sent you that I'm going to talk about my news article. It's about a farmer. <laughs> it's quite an interesting <laughs> article. I forget. Somebody sent me this. Uh, a farmer using guinea pigs to control weeds, Mark. Um, this farmer is using guinea pigs to control weeds is all you need to brighten up your day. <laughs> and there's a the few pictures of... Um, John. Oh, um, John, John, let's Gargan. call him John. Oh, I wasn't going to call it by surname, but there you go. You've brought the, the, the guinea pigs out of the bag. Um, <laughs> in, in Who lives in F&Q, which to us locals in Australia, far north Queensland. Bit remote. Um, and he's using his trial in, he says, um, guinea pigs to control weeds on his farm. And he says, besides them ab- being absolutely adorable, they're extremely effective. Um, so he's fenced off a, an area of, um, I think it's mentioned there somewhere. I'll try and find it in a sec. And he's put 50 guinea pigs in there, Mark, um, to bust his weeds in um, at a place west of Cairns in North Queensland. And uh, he says, a lot of people think I'm crazy, but I get so much joy out of these little guys doing their job. And the job they're doing is quite amazing. They're doing a number on the grass, he is saying. Um, so there you go. And John has been farming for 60 years um, and he still hasn't fixed his front teeth by the look of the pictures there, Mark. Sorry, John, but you need to maybe, perhaps there aren't too many dentists out there um, in far north Queensland. And um, he's using them. And it, it's not the only, it's not the only, um, it's, it, it's things out of the square, I think. Um, he's also. He's also um, using other species. He is using goats, geese, sorry, a flock of geese to convert cover crops like sun hemp into manure. Um, So he's expecting that his guinea pigs will breed um, like guinea pigs, as he says, and to end up with a fair few more and that he might lose a few um, along the way to predation. Um, (laughs) However, he's thinking of setting up a cat trap or two, Mark. Um, So what do you think about that, using guinea pigs to help keep your your lawn down, Mark, and and the weeds down? Um, It's it's a big picture thinking small, (laughs) isn't it? I think um, that, geez, 50 is a large number of guinea pigs, but I think... In far north Queensland, the way that things grow up there, you're going to need like a fairly Hundreds. big, <laughs> fairly big herd of guinea pigs to to make a significant difference to the weeds. Um, but um, but geez, all I think this the good thing is these are uh, animals that first of all are obviously socialising. You can see by the photos there, they've um, got a wide variety of things to have a munch on. Um, and they're out in the open air, and um, geez, um, I don't think they could be uh, more happy. I just am not. Um, I'm not counting on them overrunning the rate at which things grow in far north Queensland. Yes, and but it's an interesting. He he, he has them. Um, 
lined up in between the the rows of his uh, trees, doesn't he? Um, because he's in, he's involved with biodynamic farming, uh, and he has syntropic farming. Mark, you'd be interested in this, where he's planted multiple tree species together on his two acre plot to create a flourishing natural food forest, according to the article. So, yeah, they do look like they're enjoying themselves, those guinea pigs, although I think he needs a bit more cover for them. He's got a little bit of netting in one of the pictures and it is fairly open. So I think he's going to lose a a few more than just one or two um, once the local predators work out that there's a there's a free food source um, sitting there. Well, that part, that part of um, far north Queensland is renowned for a number of species of rather large python, the scrubby and um, jungle yes. carpets. And, um, yeah, I, do, I think, uh, um, well, I would be surprised that he could make it secure enough that those snakes didn't eventually find his... Uh, his rodents and, um, well, make a small Cull some a bit, I was going yes. to say. Yes. But good on him for trying and, and um, he looks he looks very proud, doesn't he? He does look happy. Pictures. He really he looks happy. He does. And as long as he fixes those um, that dentition, um, he'll be he'll be even have an even he'll have a winning smile then, Mark. Not that he doesn't have one now. What's your new story, Mark? Oh, mine! I, I sent you this one uh, about the magpies. That's right, uh, yep. uh, Brendan, and um, I really love this because uh, it it has all the the things that make a good story. I reckon uh, it has the goodwill of the scientists. The scientists have uh, involved have um, just recently gotten the most micro miniaturized uh, tracking devices they they possibly can. They're really cool little uh, um, devices, and and the unique thing about them is that they can be much like um, some of the devices we use as humans they can be recharged remotely magnetically and so um, the these birds had a feeding station made um, so that the battery in the tracker which was only it only weighs about a gram yes. um, the battery in it could be recharged remotely meaning that they could harness you know, an extended period of of tracking data from these birds. So the birds were caught. Um, they were habituated to a, a, a feeding station. They were caught and had a little harness, a tough little harness um, that, uh, um, that could be remotely released when the, the thing was over so the birds didn't have to be caught again. Um, and, um, and it opened up the possibility for hu- a huge amount of efficiency and, and in, in, in capturing a huge amount of data. And interestingly, magpies have become a bit of a focus for this sort of research because they're, while still common, their numbers seem to be changing and we don't know exactly why. So excellent, uh, you know, uh, scientific endeavour. Um, but as is usual with wild animals and scientific endeavours, and particularly complicated animals like magpies, the magpies got together and figured out how to um, to remove the harnesses. They worked together <laughs> to, to take the bloody things off. The scientists didn't think that they would be able to get them off at all. And if they did, they thought it might be a few months. But uh, within 24 hours, the first bird had uh, removed one from itself. And within two days, they were perching together and helping each other remove them. And a little bit after two days, all the uh, trackers, I think there was, um, there was uh, how many of them? 
uh, it only took 10 minutes before the first bird was started yanking at yes. the harness to remove it, and it um, and they were all gone within 48 hours. Um, so, so an excellent, um, an excellent uh, scientific plan comes a ground on the rocks of the uh, the intelligent thought and cooperative behaviour of magpies. And um, the other interesting aspect of this is the way that they helped each other, the altruistic attitude that the magpies took. Not only did they remove their own, once they figured out how to do it, they went over to their mates in the flock and uh, gave them a little bit of a hand. They have been known other birds have been known to do this to help each other out, maybe removing seeds, sticky seeds from their plumage. Um, but this sort of behaviour isn't, this altruistic behaviour known as rescuing is is a very rare behaviour. And so, crockies, there's so many good things to this story, but the end of it is they couldn't get any data, Brendan. Yes, it's, it is a great story. And I'm just looking at the graphic there about the little system they did design with that ground feeding station. So, yeah, three things were supposed to potentially happen. One is they could wirelessly charge the battery when they landed it in that station. And that's like those the chi chargers, aren't they, the wireless um, inductive charging for you know your phone, mobile phones and that where you just put them on those little plates. Um, or you could download the data. Or if they decided time was up for tracking this magpie, uh, those harnesses were attached by magnet, so they'd flick on the you know magnet or whatever um, another magnet, and it would um, remove the harness. Um, but um, so they they had an ingenious method, but the magpies had none of it, didn't they? They decided, no, let's get these things off, um, and, they, and they did. So yeah, great story. Um, um, Be very interested to um, have a talk to. Doug, one of our sponsors from uh, Microchips Australia, because I know that Microchips Australia are involved in um, in a number of these uh, um, uh, tracking wild animal uh, type setups. Uh, I don't think this was one of his, but I'm sure you have some knowledge about it. And um, and uh, without a doubt, thoughts. Yes. Microchips Australia will be at the cutting edge of, um, of <laughs> setting always. up a magpie-proof uh, tracking system. Yes, Good story. Well, let's ju- that, that's a good segue into our main, main um, topic this week, which is one that you've suggested, and I'm fascinated. I'm going to sit back and listen to you pontificate about the subject. We're going to talk about eclectus parrots and in spe- specifically their behaviour or behaviour issues that we see in pet eckies and how that relates to what normally happens with behaviour in the wild. I think that's what you're going to sort of do as a gonna, summary. Yeah, I was going to focus on that sort of stuff. We we see heaps of eclectus parrots um, and they're, you know, they're, they're big and very brightly coloured and, um, and re- you know, tropical parrots. They're interactive. They uh, um, socialise with humans. Um, but we see lots and lots of behavioural issues with them. And, um, and I think it's really important to have a little bit of a background on their wild behaviour, which is very different from many other birds, um, to get a handle on why we might see so many of, behavior, of those troublesome behaviours and what we might do to um, uh, to lessen them. So, we, so we, do, you get, yeah. do you ever see any of them, Brendan? No, I don't. Um, I mean, um, John, who's working for me now, might see the odd one, but um, I, I, physically I can't, can't remember the last time we see. So we don't see 
many birds um and i as you know i tend to be a bit bird averse these these <laughs> days um but by the sound of it yeah it's a common i mean it is with a lot of pet birds isn't it behavioral issues is 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 a is a big part of um bird medicine but especially in species like the eclectus parrot so let's jump back to um do you want to chat a little bit about how these birds function or, or what they do in the wild and how yeah. that sort of relates to the problems that we're seeing in the pet birds well the fact their wild behavior is fascinating what they do is they don't form individual pairs um, they form territories female birds will locate a suit nest site um, and she'll be surrounded by maybe three to seven male territories and then each of those males will abut another female or two territory on the other side so that they sort of are serially polygamous they um you know a male will come in and and uh, provide some food to the female in the nest um, she'll uh, mate with him um, then he'll move on the next male sort of counterclockwise or some order they have um, will come in and the female picks the male that is most, um, you know, she'll mate with maybe a half a dozen males and pick the male that in her mind provides the best genetic material for the next generation. Um, and the males then continue to support her serially as she sits on the eggs um, and um, raises the young. So it's a much more complicated and uh, not, um, uh, you know, not an individual one-on-one bird thing. Um, and so when we transpose those birds and bring them into captivity, um, it's no surprise that the female birds to start with become manically obsessed with nesting sites. Um, they uh, um, really spend most of their time looking for them because that's what they would do in the wild. Um, and the male birds, um, they, they tend to get a bit disoriented in my experience as captive birds. They often have been hand-reared, so they don't know whether to mate with people or birds. And they often... Um, become a little bit anxious about it all because I don't think they understand what they're supposed to do. So plumage problems end up being a big uh, consequence of, uh, of the transition from a wild behaviour to a captive behaviour with these birds as they get anxious and pick at their plumage. Now you mentioned about that sort of territory um, with that mating and, and um, behaviour. What, what? Give us an idea on the range in the wild. What, what would the range, the, 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 how many square kilometres or, or whatever I don't would think these it's birds that, have? I don't think it's – it varies a little bit on the productivity of the rainforest in which the birds live in, um, but I don't think it's really big. I think these birds are, are occupying, you know, point – five to point eight of a hectare um not a huge territory and you've got to remember that um that uh, they probably really only need one or two decent rainforest trees um which will produce fruit because they're tropical trees they're producing fruit through a large part of the year um a bird that has a territory with two or three trees in it is really uh providing a significant resource okay good so what goes wrong with these pet ones um, that, that we're doing drastically wrong that we can potentially, hopefully you're going to solve it all for us, as you should know. <laughs> How do we fix it based on um, looking back at 
the way things are at, with the wild birds? Well, I think the first thing, um, there's several steps to this. I think the first thing is um, to control the behaviour of the female birds. Um, and the best way to do that, I think, is is firstly to not let them have access to any um, any nesting sites. They will find drawers or the back of a cupboard or they'll be driven to find a dark, hollow log analogue and um and if you can prevent that that sort of prevents the first troubling aspect of you know their behavior and the hormonal consequences of their behavior and the next thing is to and it runs a little bit counter you want it, the whole point of these pet birds i think is that you want to block some of that normal wild reproductive behavior and maximize the wild um, uh, searching uh, foraging behavior and so I think uh, providing small frequent meals making up meals and providing them um, and setting up the meals that you do provide to the birds in such a way that they have to work to get them a little bit burns off a significant amount of energy and mental activity which lessens the likelihood that the female birds will go um, uh, looking for a nest site. Um, the the other aspect of that is the interactions with humans that often these birds come into a family because of one person. One person in the family loves them and uh, they, they love enter them back. And, and the birds end up loving that particular person back hugely. Um, and I think it's very important uh, that each time these birds come into a family, it's a family decision and, and everyone takes it. It's almost like a little bit of a roster that... Um, uh, people have to spend time with different people have to spend time with the birds so that they don't become fixated just on one member of the family. So thinking slightly, well, not, isn't really off topic. Um, what's the recommendations for if people want to keep, to breed this particular species of parrot? Um, how many would you recommend they keep of each sex and do you keep them separate and bring them together only for the mating or do most people just they have female and male and they just throw them together from day one and that's part of the issue um, compared with what happens naturally with them it's exactly as you mentioned at the end brendan the, the interesting thing is that most of the birds um, that are in captivity here in Australia are, um, are hybrid birds uh, that um, were brought into captivity um, in the early, interestingly enough, in the early years of uh, Taronga Zoo when Sir Edward Holstrom ran the zoo, he acquired a number of uh, eclectus parrots of different provenance, um, bred them at the zoo, and then they entered the private pet trade. So the birds are... Um, not of pure provenance, um, and most aviculturists treat them as they would any other bird. That is, just as you described, they throw them in a decent-sized aviary as a pair, um, and the birds uh, will breed. But they often have problems. They're they're not the they're, while they certainly are pairs that um, have adapted their wild behaviour to aviculture, and I think almost in a little bit of a domestication way. They've 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 uh they have a different adapted behavior there still is many pairs that won't uh you know many birds that won't breed normally because they're unable to express their wild behavior completely yes okay um 
I'm going to jump around a, a tiny bit here, Mark, because you did you you piqued my interest when you mentioned about I want to chat a little bit about diet with them. So, can you can we quickly cover that before you jump back onto the behaviour solutions? Definitely, definitely. Um, in the wild, um, these birds are um, frugivorous, predominantly frugivorous, and they eat a little bit of plant material and occasional nuts and seeds from the the plants of the tropical rainforest. Um, they have some gastrointestinal adaptations um, to this sort of a diet, um, which means that they don't always adapt well to the the you know the sort of seed diet that we might think most aviary birds would do well on um, and while pelleted diets are now being formulated with the specific interests of eclectus parrots at uh, at their heart um, it, they're still very hard birds to free, feed and even when we uh, formulate a diet that consists of a large amount of um of fruit, a lot of the fruits that we have cultivated as humans have vastly increased fruit sugars and vastly decreased fiber um, to make them, you know, yummier to eat. Um, and so a lot of the, the foods that, uh, that can be fed to them um, might not necessarily be the best. And, and while people trying to feed fruits to these birds, uh, trying to mimic their wild diet, um, are approximating the right thing, those high sugar levels in them often only exacerbate the reproductive urges. Surging um, uh, sugar levels in a diet, uh, surging energy levels in a diet um, tend to increase the secretion of the reproductive hormones and, uh, and exacerbate most of the reproductive problems we see with these birds. So we are looking to feed them diets that... Uh, that are um, that are slow in intake, that they can't pile a whole lot up in one go, that are relatively high in fibre compared to many of the other diets that we feed other birds. And, of course, we want to have a fair bit of um, fruit in there and a wide variety of fruit to, uh, to lessen the deleterious effects of single cultivated strains. Yes. So not surprisingly, um, the animals... This particular species, like many, um, if times are good, they'll crank into reproductive phase. That's what you're saying, isn't it, Mark? Um, so we've got to be a bit careful about trying to have that over over sexualization happening and um, changing the diet can have a good good effect with um, preventing problems with um, reproduction. Is that correct? exactly the case and one of the best ways to get around that particularly with pet birds is um, obviously monitoring energy intake as we suggested by paying attention to the diet um, but the other side of the coin is energy output many of these birds will be um, you know if it's relatively easy to get large amounts of food and uh and then, and all they do in the wild is look for food and try to reproduce. Well, if they've got their food, they're going to try and reproduce. So, um, making uh, their total amount of intake a little bit less, but also giving them reasons to exercise. And this is where I think um, uh, things like training eclectus parrots, teaching them to fly to you, um, uh, uh, having periods of time where 
treats they might like they don't get for a day or so and then they're taught you know they're given rewards for performing energetic behaviors and i think we've got to remind remind ourselves that flight is a is a, an amazing thing that birds do but it's a hugely energetic thing and a lot of these you know i regularly talk to clients who have um, pet eclectus parrots that walk around the house follow them around the house uh, but won't fly because they're lazy sods um, and forcing them to flap their wings and and uh, burn off some of that energy once again lessens the the uh, likelihood they're going to drive towards that reproductive behavior so as usual we're big on behavioral enrichment mark as, as a broader picture with all of these captive and pet animals um, so what other things do you suggest as far as enhancing their their um correct behaviours in captivity and not getting bored? What other things can we do for them? Are there any specific sort of toys or, that you do or don't recommend for eclectus parrots? Well, there is. It's a really interesting area because we're feeding, you know, with, with say we had a cockatoo, um, we could uh, get a big chunk of wood and drill some holes in it and pop some seeds or pellets in it and we could leave that sitting there in the enclosure for a day or two in their in their room or cage or whatever um, and it's very unlikely to cause a problem and when they got around to cracking the wood open and getting the seeds out then that would be an excellent outcome but because we're feeding these birds predominantly uh, soft foods fruits um, for a significant part um, you can't it's very difficult to manage that um uh, you know, that foraging behavior, yes. try and set it up so that the fruit doesn't spoil and that we're not um, complicated by fungal or bacterial problems after the fruit's been sitting there for a while. So I often talk to people about, um, you know, I love the the natural um, toys and the, the, the uh, um, uh, natural fibers for the birds to uh, exercise with. Uh, but with these birds, I'm often talking to people about the easy-to-clean acrylic uh, toys, those sorts of ones where the birds can see what's in there and then they have to figure out how to open a drawer or undo a, an acrylic bolt to get in. Um, they, they work very well because the birds tend to spend some time working it out, um, but they're very easy to clean afterwards and, uh, and that's critically important. And, and it also points to the intensive nature of caring for these birds. Um, I think, you know, here in Australia, lots of people would keep budgerigars and those birds, um, you know, um, would get a bucket of seed and be in a cage and, and survive well for long periods of time, maybe not with the best quality of life, but, um, but, uh, with an eclectus parrot, they are a uh, full, almost full-time zookeeping responsibility. You've got to have time set aside to be able to manage their foraging, manage their exercise, do some training, clean up after them because they, like any frugivorous bird, they will produce very messy droppings. Um, and I always bemoan the, you know, a number of the manufacturers of food are trying to, des to design f pelleted foods that uh, make the droppings more acceptable, um, I, I think uh, we just have to accept that um, that's what's natural for these birds and we have to be set up and prepared to care for them that way when they do make a bit of a mess, Brendan. Yes. So do you think, would you regard this as a species that you'd see a greater percentage of them 
being rehomed compared with some of the other parrot species that you see after the people realise, hey, we've taken on more than we can deal with and we can't care for this animal correctly. Uh, that's a really insightful question. Um, and I think it's true that um, there's two factors that go into it. The f first one you've already mentioned, that people suddenly realise that um, that this is a huge responsibility and it's going to be a, and a responsibility for a very long time because they live for 35 or 40 years. Um, and the second one is that they care for the birds so much and so um, they do uh, uh, not want them to just go to anyone else. They, they search around looking for rescue groups or um, for a, an alternate home that can supply those things. But there is a significant yeah. number of people looking to rehome their Eclectus parrot because they do realise they've taken on more than they can chew. Yes, so to speak. I was going to do a pun there, but I won't. Um, so I was going to lead. Yes. Go on, you ask your question first. No, I, I was going no. to lead into um, because <laughs> I'd mentioned that uh, the reproductive behaviours and and um, probably the two. There are a whole bunch of you know health issues associated with exercise and diet, um, uh, hormonal problems, but we definitely see a disproportionate number of reproductive problems in these birds. And the female birds um, will um, develop dystochia. Uh, significant dystochia issues um, and they are probably one of the birds that I would uh, start talking to people um, about uh, desexing um, uh, even before there was a problem um, and and certainly um, they need very regular um, uh, physical exams they're one of the birds that um, you know once every six months the female bird should be um, weighed and abdominally palpated um, because they, they they often conceal the early changes associated with these problems and uh, and so looking at them less frequently than that might mean that you you you're, you know the problem's already too far gone before you get to deal with it. The second one I was going to mention was the feathers that they it does seem to be a relatively uh, frequent thing and this is this I'm going to give you one of Mark's theories my theory is that rainforest birds need to have um, amongst the best plumage available because it has to be waterproof um, in the rainforest they get wet all the time um, their plumage if it's not perfect then they'll um, get sodden bits damp bits and they won't be able to maintain their normal body temperature so um, they are rainforest birds are more fastidious maybe than some of our uh, pigeons that live in in uh, um, in our suburban parks or um, species like that um, which makes it an easy thing to imagine just a little bit of extra anxiety a little bit of extra sexual frustration and, uh, and then they start to pay extra attention to their plumage and um, and it's very common for these birds to overpreen um, and become feather destructive even um, and and it's critically important that these birds are seen very very quickly once this starts to happen so that um, that uh, the, the specific changes that can be made are made early because once those behaviours become ingrained, they can be very difficult to change. Mm. So what's your general regular checkup period 
for this species, Mark? Oh, for, we try and aim for once every six months and we try yep. and make one of those. One of the interesting things is that while the wild birds will breed all year round, being a tropical bird, they, they don't experience seasons where they are besides the wet and the dry, um, but they tend to breed all year round. But um, where it's more temperate, they will have a peak of sexual activity in the spring. And so trying to look at them just before that is a, a good thing. So we'll often schedule something, um, you know, a, as we get to sort of uh, September, October, um, and then six months later as we uh, um, uh, get, get head into autumn, they're probably at least that frequently these birds need to be checked. Yes. Excellent. Well, I think you've covered most of the um, basic questions I had, Mark, regarding the the differences between the you know pet pet and the wild eclectus parrots and the issues we're seeing with them. Was there anything else you wanted to cover? I know it's a very brief overview this one, but as usual, we can um, have some more more podcast topics on this species or other species of parrots, depending on people can send us an email vetgurus at gmail.com. Um, is there anything else you want to chat about in this little little um, teaser? <laughs> it's a teaser of a It is, it is a bit of an care. overview. And I do think yes. we, you know, like you said, we can spend some time talking about um, specific problems and uh, the best way to deal with those, particularly those reproductive ones. Uh, but no, I think um, just uh, if people, if we can get across the thought that they are much more complex birds than uh, than might initially be thought, and I certainly don't think of them as beginner birds at all. And um, and anyone who, any client who is wise enough to seek um, advice before the event of obtaining one, then then certainly. Uh, don't hesitate to make them aware of the significant responsibility they're taking on. And isn't it great when you have a, a client who wants to consider a potential pet and they actually contact you before they purchase a pet? Um, I wish it was the, the norm, but it's sort of still a rarity, unfortunately, isn't it, Mark? A rarity that you look forward to, though. Like when it does happen, you think, oh, these people are going to get it. They, they're approaching it from the very start the best way. Yes. Good. All right. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Mark. And I think with that, we'll kick off for today and we will talk to you all next time. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.